Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for coming to the front. I have a story I want to tell you. But before I tell you the story, I need to ask you to tell me some stuff. Because I need to know what you know and what you don't know. If I said the word princess to you, what does that mean? A daughter of the king. What is a prince, Adrian? A son of a king. What is a queen? And what is a king? A dad to a prince. What would you say if somebody asked you on a quiz, on a test, what would you say a king is? See, before you answer, let me say something. When I asked what a queen was, you identified the queen as having relationship with the king. When I asked who the princess was, you answered the princess was a person who had a relationship to the king. When I asked you who the prince was, you said you had a, it was a person who had a relationship to the king. When I asked you who the king was, the ruler of the world. Go ahead, Elliot. Ah, that's an interesting thought. He said the son of God. Eleanor. Where does a king live? In a castle. Somebody said ruler of the world. What does that mean, ruler? What does ruler mean? They what? They do what? I'm sorry, I can't. A master. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having ringing in my ears, so I'm having a hard time hearing right now. So you said a master, a ruler. Um, if a king is the ruler or a master, they're in charge of what? Everything. Everything. Audrey, what do you think? They're in charge of a what? A kingdom. What is a kingdom? Part of the world. It's a. It's an area. Okay. Eleanor, what do you think? What is a kingdom? A place where what happens? Okay, where the king... Oh, that's a good thought. The king helps. It's a place where the castle is. It's part, maybe part of a town. When we lived in England, we had a castle near us called Framlingham Castle. It was a ruin. It wasn't an active castle anymore. But what we learned was a castle was actually a big, huge wall. And it had the house where the king lived. But it also had other small houses where the people of the village came in at night for protection. So the king provided protection, the king provided food, the king was the ruler of everything. Now, when we think of kings, do we think of powerful people? When we think of kings, do we think of happy or sad? We think of happy. You think of happy. When you think of kings, do you think of mean or nice? Not mean. Ah, different thoughts. Sometimes there could be mean, sometimes there could be nice. When you think of king of kings, well, let me ask this. If I said, talk to me about a backwards king, what does that mean? Everybody's like, what's a backwards king? I have a story I want to tell you about a backwards king. Okay? When I tell you something about this king and you think that's not what kings do, you go, that's a backwards king. Okay? So practice that. Say for me. 
That's a backwards king. Point your finger at me. That's a backwards king. Okay? One more time. Say it again. Ah, you didn't say it really. Say it again. Perfect. I'm going to read to you a story. And whenever you hear something that's not the way you normally think about a king, you go, that's a backwards king. Okay? Today, I'm going to tell you about a backward king. And I need your help. When I stop and point at you, you're going to say... That's a backwards king. Okay, you ready? Let's do this one more time. Perfect. Okay, here we go. A long time ago, there lived a king. Kings live, right? All kings live. He wasn't an ordinary king. He was a... He was different from other kings because he did everything backwards from the way other kings did them. From the very first day when he was born, you could tell that he was going to be different. Most kings are usually born where? In a palace. This king was born in a stable surrounded by donkeys and cows and sheep. It wasn't a very big beginning for a king. In fact, very few people even knew that a king had been born. Only just a few shepherds and three wise men got word that the king had been born. And as the baby king grew into a man, he continued to be different from other kings. While most kings spent all of their time building up their riches of silver and gold and jewels, this king owned nothing at all. And while most kings surrounded themselves with many, many, many servants, he chose to be a servant to everybody else. As time went on, People began to be very unhappy with their king because he didn't act the way they thought kings should act. Instead of riding into town on a big white horse the way other kings usually did, this king rode into town on the back of a donkey. Was that any way for a king to act? And the people he chose, the people he chose to be his friends, his closest friends were a bunch of smelly fishermen. And he could have even, he could often be seen visiting with poor people and eating with sinners. And finally, the people decided they had put up with this king long enough. If he couldn't act the way a king should act, then they didn't want him to be the king anymore. And they made a plan to have him arrested and thrown into prison. And their plan worked. When the day came for the king's trial, the king stood before the people and instead of shouting, Hail to the king! Long live the king! They shouted, Kill him! He's not our king! Kill him! So they crucified the king. They nailed him to a cross. They put him a crown. They put a crown on him, but it was made out of thorns. And they poked him with sharp sticks and they made fun of him. What a horrible way for a king to die. Yes, it is. After he was crucified, they took his body and they put it in a borrowed tomb. That's backwards for kings too. Normally they would put them in a really nice burial place, wouldn't they? But that's exactly. But that's not the end of the story. Remember, this backward king was different. This king, when he died... 
He didn't stay in the grave. He rose back up from the grave and he now lives forever. That's a back. Say it. That's a backward king. Instead of being a backward king, though, he is a forever king. He is the king to anyone who chooses for him to be their king. Oh, there's still some people who say he's backwards. They still go, oh, he's king backwards. But those who know him don't call him that. They call him. Adrian's got it. He's had it from the very beginning. They call him King Jesus. And Jesus wants to be all of our kings. And if we choose him to be our king, we will live happily ever after. And we'll go to heaven. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for you guys. God, please help these kids to to make you their king. Help them to learn to live in such a way that you indeed are the king, that you take care of them and provide for them and protect them. And Father, be their king forever, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go and be with your teacher, okay? Thank you so much for coming. that picture that's on the very first slide, please, for sermon slides. What are you guys seeing on that picture? It says empire, and then underneath it says what? Their royal highnesses. Uh Uh-oh, no teacher back there. (laughs) On July 22nd, 1991, This photo was taken. I was there. I wasn't in that crowd, but I was there. I was, as you're looking at that picture, so from your perspective, you're looking at me, so from from that picture, I was about a block that way. I was on a second floor. I was in a restaurant. This was London. So it's July of 1991. That day was the day that the movie Backdraft premiered in London. We got into the restaurant, my boss and I, we had had to go into London for, for business. And so we, we drove the two hours from our base where we were stationed out in the rural part of England, got to London, parked, did the business that we had to do, and then we were ready to head on back. And my boss looked at me and he said, I have been in country for three months. And this is my first chance to get into London. And I'm not just going to do business and head on back to my house. So we're going to hang out. And I was like, what? So we toured around in London and saw different things. And it came time for dinner. And we were asking somebody for a good restaurant. And I don't remember the name of the restaurant. I want to say it was Adam's Rib. I know that's not right, but it's something rib. But I can't, I can't for the life of me remember what it was. But it was on the second floor of a building. So we were up in the second floor. And while we were sitting at the table waiting... Our server came up and my boss said to the server, what in the world is that crowd outside? And she said, oh, it's so exciting. The prince and princess are coming because we're gonna, they're, they're having that movie and, and all of the, all of the, the, the Hollywood stars are coming and that, and as we were taught, as we were, um, um, 
excuse me, as we were talking, the the crowd had, had already started to disperse a little bit because everyone had already arrived for the movie and they were already inside the movie theater. But then as the time was going on, the movie was about to be over with while we were still there at the restaurant and the crowd started getting cr- louder and louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, while we were almost done with our food, the crowd outside started screaming. Ah! Craziness. Everyone in the restaurant, including my boss and I, ran to the windows and were looking out the windows. And I saw Princess Diana and Prince Charles. And they walked out of that door right there on the screen and walked down to their their Rolls Royce limousine and got into it. And then I saw Kirk Douglas and then I saw some other people and then, then we went back to our table. It was so cool. I was like, what a cool serendipitous thing that I got to see Prince Charles and Princess Diana in my very first trip to London. That is so cool. So the next day, I'm at work. And I'm talking with my coworkers. And most of the people in my office are military people who are stationed there. So they're not English. They are Americans who have been stationed. But one woman, her name was Carolyn. 22 years old. She was what's called a Ministry of Defense employee. She was a civil servant for Her Majesty's government, and she was working in our office. And while I'm sharing this story of what had happened the night before, Carolyn got real sullen. And I really perceived that I had somehow done something to offend. Because, you know, in the United States, we say something and we don't even care. But you get over there and you say that same thing and it's, oh my goodness, we just caused a harm. Because the words that we say and the words that they say don't always have the same meaning. And, you know, like for example, if you have stuff in the trunk of your car, that's actually the boot of your car. If you have something under an engine problem, you have to raise the bonnet. So there's different words. So I was afraid that I had said something in my exuberance and said something that's not appropriate or caused harm. So I came up to her afterwards. I said, Carolyn, did I offend you? She said, no, why? I said, well, you seemed to get really upset when I was talking about the fact that, you know, Captain and I saw the prince and princess last night. And she got tears in her eyes. And she said, I've lived in this country 22 years. And I've never seen the royals with my own eyes. And that was the first time I understood how important the royal family was and is to the British people. For us, we re-elect our, our leaders every two or three or four years. You don't like them, we'll get another one in a few weeks. And we can badmouth them. We have the right to badmouth them because we have freedom of speech. And most of the time we do badmouth them. But in England, they hold in high honor the royal family. And don't say anything about their royal family, because you will get yourself stomped on. Now, they can say something they don't like about them, but don't you dare. And that's something that I never really had any perspective on when it comes to kings, until I got there and saw that. Okay, you can bring back the the devotional slide now. Um, We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. And this is a time of transition in the nation of Israel's history. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, I don't want to take the time to read all of it because it's way too long to read. Um, Just to to give a little bit of a, a synopsis. Samuel 
has reached near the end of his life. He's in his 70s, maybe his 80s. He has two sons, a guy named Joel and a guy named Abijah. They are not good guys. Samuel reaches the point where he's starting, you know, when you get older, you want to retire, you want to pull back a little bit. So he starts giving his sons the assignments to do the work. Well, the people of Israel, the elders of Israel, the people of the, 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 the clan, the leaders of the clans of the nation of Israel gather together in Samuel's hometown of Ramah and they come to Samuel and they say, look, you're old and your sons, they're not good people. Now we want you instead, instead of putting your sons over us who we know are not doing the life that they need to live, we want you to appoint a king over us. And it says in verse 7, excuse me, verse 6, Samuel's response was he got on his face before God. And he said to the Lord, they're asking for a king. And verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. From being king over them. Now. Let's stop there. God is the king over Israel. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. His son Joseph. Gets sent into slavery. Goes to Egypt. God raises Joseph up. To be the number two guy in all of Egypt. A famine takes place. Jacob and his sons come to Egypt. Live there. The family grows to be hundreds and thousands of people. Then Moses raises up as a leader. Guides the nation of Israel out from underneath the oppression of the Egyptian pharaoh or king. Moses then leads them through the desert for 40 years They finally get to the promised land. Joshua then rises up to be the leader and he leads them into taking over the the area that was the promised land. He assigns various regions for each family group and then they settle. And then the next book in the Bible is the Judges. And this is a period of time where every little region, every little tribe is their own group. There's no leader over them. There's no ruler over them. Judges raise up and kind of rally the whole nation for a period. But then they go back to being separate. Samuel is the very first prophet. See, Samuel was the last of the judges. And he was the first prophet. But he wasn't their king. Who was the king? Now, let's go back to what the kids said. When you ask, what is a king? What does a king do? The king is the ruler, the one who's in charge, the one who's the master. The king is over a region or a kingdom or a geographical thing. The king provides for the people. The king... You see, we're... None of these people that I mentioned, Moses and Joshua and any of the judges and then Samuel, none of them were the king the whole time. God was king. God was king. So when, G, when, when the people, when the elders came to Samuel in, in, in chapter 8 and said, appoint for us a king because you're dying, 
And Samuel goes to God and says, what am I supposed to do, God? And God said, do what they say. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I'm their king and they're turning their back on me. And that's the first time really in all of the scriptural story that we ever see God in that role as king. Now, interestingly, one of the things, look at what God says in verse 9. Look what it says. When now then, this is God talking to Samuel, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, before we go there, I want to talk about this idea of asking for a king. Before we go into what is the king going to do, let's look at this idea of asking for a king. Were they sinning? Were they going against God's will in asking for a king? What are your thoughts? Well, they want to be like, so we can be like everyone else. So we can be like everyone else. Okay. Was it God's perfect will for them to have a king? No. No? I'm sorry? God himself. I'm going to, I'm, go, I'm, 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 I'm just looking for you to just be thinking. Okay, there is no necessarily right or wrong answer. But I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is one of the five books that Moses brought to the people of, Na- of Israel through God. I mean, God through Moses brought this to the people. This is the law, if you will. This is how these people lived And Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20 says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Stop. It's not out of God's will for them to have a king. He is already saying, God through Moses is saying, there's going to come a time when you get to the promised land and you get established and you get settled that you're going to ask to set a king up. Just like all the other nations. This is exactly what, like what Mary Lee just said. All of, they want to be like the other nations. They want to have a king. And God said, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So in other words, it has to be a Jewish person, has to be an Israelite. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has sent, said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this king shall have shall write for himself in a book of co- a copy of this law. Now hear this: the king, when he's sitting on his throne, shall write for himself. In a book, a copy of the law. In other words, the king.
king's going to have the law in front of him, and he's going to have a blank book in front of him, and he's going to have a pen and ink. And he has to make his own personal copy of the book of, of the law that he can keep there at the throne with him at all times. Okay. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." See, it wasn't God's, it wasn't going against God's will for the people of Israel to ask for a king because God had already said that that time is going to come. So that's what was happening. But he said, but there are some specifics that you need to do when this time happens. Now let's see what they did. God said, in fact, going back to 1 Samuel, God said to Samuel, go ahead and tell them, I mean, appoint a king for them, but tell them, the ways that the king is going to reign over them. So let's look at that. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. That's 1 Samuel 8.10. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. And to be his horsemen. And to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, for all of these hundreds of years, from the time of Abraham getting called out to go to the promised land, and then Jacob and his family moving to Egypt, and then coming back to the promised land under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, and now through all of the years of the judges living in the land and trying to establish themselves as a nation within land, but actually as individual regions, and then finally under Samuel, they are being united as the nation of Israel. Always God was their king. And he never asked them to give a tenth of anything other than to feed the priests, you know, so that they could worship and lead the nation in worship. But he never said you need to. He never said that the king, that he was going to tax them so that he could live. He had a memory. He didn't need anybody to support him. I'm talking about God over the Israel. And so... So Samuel says, it's not wrong for you to ask for a king, but understand, this is what you're opening yourself up to. And understand, when you get there, you're going to realize, ooh, this wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. 
And at that point, it's too late. So what do you say? Look at verse 19. What did they say? The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, No, where shall, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Make them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Okay, everybody go home. We'll make it happen. One of the things that um, that I, I, I came across as I was studying one of the commentators wrote this, and, and I was like, wow, I never thought about this before. God didn't hold the nation accountable for sin because they wanted a king. He said, the time is going to come, you're going to want a king, and I don't have a problem with that. If that's what you want, go for it. But that's not my perfect will. My perfect will for you is I'll be your king. But you don't want that. You want to be like everybody else. You want to have a king that lives in a castle. That has an army. That can fight the battles. But you're not getting it. Where's the army going to come from? From your own household. Where's the money going to come from to support the king. And the the entourage. And the household. And the army. It's going to come from your sweat and your back. And the calluses on your hands. King's not going to do all that work. Kings would be too busy administering and being king. You don't understand what you're asking for. I'm not saying you can't have it. If you want it, it's okay. But understand what you're opening yourself up to before you make the choice. And literally what we saw here was when Samuel brought that back to the people and pronounced to them all the things, all the cautions. They were like, no, we want it. We want it. We want it. God's like, okay, I'm not going to say no. Go for it. But understand, it could have been better. You could have had so much better. And that's the story here. That's, that's the gist of the story here. And I was like, okay, well, Lord, what is it that I'm supposed to say to your people about this? What's the spiritual gem that we're supposed to take home with us and mull over and chew on? And the Lord said, it's true in every single life. I have a perfect will and I have a permissive will. The question is, do they want what's best or do they want what's expedient? Do they want what's best or do they want what everyone else has? Do they want what's best or do they want to not have to wait so long and just take it what they can get now? And it's just really interesting as I was thinking about that. And I'm not, again, I, this isn't a negative thing. I mean, this is, there's no sin in this. God isn't saying that anybody is sinning by having these desires and wanting this. But there's, it's like, what are we settling for? Instead of waiting and letting God. Because if, if you go through the story, we are going to go through the story in the coming weeks. But if you, when you get through this story, you're going to see... Oh, it could have been so much better. So much better. But you pushed, you pushed too fast, too hard, too selfishly. See, there's times in my own life, there's times in my own life. We, I, I, I told this story many times before, but I'll share it with you again this morning. 
Back in 1983, I was assigned, I was given an assignment to go to Italy. I'm getting to go to Europe. I'm so excited. I'm stoked. And we were preparing and planning and we were, we were doing everything we could to prepare. We were so excited. We were going to go see all of these things while we were there. And then literally less than three months before we were supposed to leave for Italy, we got reassigned to the Philippines. I was not a happy human being. I have absolutely no desire to go to Asia. I am not drawn to Asian culture. I'm not, I don't like seafood. Renee likes seafood, but I don't like seafood. I don't want to be hot all the time. But we literally came to the point where we said, you know, we trust God. We've said our whole lives, up to that point we are like 26 or 27, so now it's a lot longer, but... At that point, we said, you know, we said to the Lord, you're the king, you're the Lord, you're in charge, we trust you. We're going to walk the path you put before us. And so we did. What we didn't know, we now know, we can look back and see, by going to the Philippines instead of going to Europe, I was trained to be the pastor of Two Rivers Community Church of the Nazarene. There were specific things that I learned and experienced while, ta- while I was at Clark Air Base in the Philippines that I wouldn't have gotten in Italy. I couldn't have gotten any other base in the world except for Clark Air Base in the Philippines. And that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is my wife had a troubled pregnancy with our second child who was born in the Philippines. And Amanda had, a, uh, had an anomaly in her own body at birth where her she had what was... The layman's term is called thick blood. Because of the problem with, the, with Renee's pregnancy, the placenta was not passing enough oxygen to the baby. So our daughter's body naturally produced more red blood cells to be able to capture more oxygen from the placenta so that she could grow and survive. And that was perfectly fine while she was in utero. But once she left the womb and was no longer connected to Renee by the placenta, those extra red blood cells literally would clot and would cause strokes and permanent damage to vital organs of her body and could even kill her by doing an embolism in her lungs or a brain clot. And so... Renee was in the uh, labor and delivery unit, gave birth to Amanda. Because it had been a troubled pregnancy, they automatically put Amanda in the neonatal intensive care unit, which was literally a five-minute walk from the laboring room to the neonatal intensive care unit. We were at Clark Air Base in the Philippines, the only base in all of Asia that had a trauma center for a hospital. The only base in all of Asia that had a neonatal intensive care unit. Had we been in Italy when all of this happened, the nearest neonatal intensive care unit would have been upwards of 12-hour trip to get her there. During those 12 hours, she could have been killed or she could have been brain damaged. And our lives would be totally different today. Now, I could have screamed and hollered at God saying, no, 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 no. Europe, 
I've always wanted to go to Europe. You promised me. You gave me the assignment. God, it's not fair. I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. And God could have gone, you don't know what's coming down the pike. But I want it. Okay. Now, God is God. And I'm not trying to second guess what God did or didn't do or what I could have done or not done. But I'm saying... As long as there's no sin involved, God's not going to necessarily close a door just because it's not his perfect will. He'll permit things in our lives if we really push, as long as we're not sinning. But look at what would have happened. I wouldn't have been trained for this job here 20 years later, and my daughter would be living with us right now, or dead. And so... The word that I want to give to you this morning, and it's just a little short little word. If you name him as king, if you name him as Lord, if you name him as God, let him be. I heard somebody this morning, it was, they're not in the room right now, so I hate to talk about them while they're not here, but one of the people that was here for earlier in the morning, we were talking, and I said, well, God knows about that, and so let God do it. And the person said, well, if he didn't know about it and he doesn't do it, he's just not God. And I went, oh, you don't know what I'm about to say. <laughs> you should be hearing me. And so my encouragement to you is this. And, I, and, and this again, this is not a negative. I, I want this to be a, a, an uplifting and positive thing. I want you to go home and I want you to just examine God. I've called you God. I've called you Lord. I've called you King. Am I letting you be? And if not, what needs to change? And if I am, hallelujah. And then finally, pray, Lord, let your perfect will be done in my life. Help me not to get in the way. Help me not to stand up and fuss and go, I want, I want, I want, I want, like a small child. Help me to know that I'm just walking the path that you've put before me and I'm trusting you 100%. I'm letting you be God. So, Father, I ask that you would bless us. Help us to go home and to do just that. To walk a path of holiness where we have set ourselves aside for your glory. Where we have submitted our will to yours. Where we truly want what you want. Even if it means not getting what we want. Because we know we can trust you. Because you will do what's best for us. And help us, Father, to to begin to understand a little bit of what it means to truly call you king. That's not part of our culture. But it is part of our theology. So help us, Father, to begin to honor you as king. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord.